our friends and family, they have our best intentions at heart. They love us. Sometimes, though, they don't know how to love us. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I share what I'm going through, when I'm in the throes of depression, when I'm in that pit of darkness, when the, when the black dogs are all around me, I don't want someone who's going to lecture me. I want someone who's going to listen to me. I don't need you to fix what I'm going through. I need you to feel my experiences. I need you to sit right there with me in that well of darkness, side to side, back to back. I want to feel supported. Sometimes we can take our problems to people who are our friends or family, and they might diminish it or they might make it all about them. All of a sudden, they're sharing their experiences and what they've been through instead of listening and resonating and connecting and helping us unpack the layers of our pain. If you go to BetterHelp.com, they will listen to you. They will sit with you. They will be that supportive partner. BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo, and you get 10% off your first month. They have international therapists throughout the world, no matter where you are, no matter what of the seven continents or the hundreds of countries that you dwell on, BetterHelp.com will link you up with a therapist in the next 48 hours. And if you don't like that therapist, it's like a dating app. You can, you can swipe and find yourself another therapist. No charge, no big deal. And the beauty is, it's teletherapy. So you don't have to get in your car and drive. You don't have to sit in traffic, sit in an office, and then you know sit in their office and then drive back. You can do all of this from the comfort of your phone, from your house, on your couch, in your own environment. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get your 10% off now, and let's jump into this episode. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Joseph KG. He's 31 years old, and up to this point, he, at 15, started his opioid addiction. And then from opioids, started robbing people, racked up 37 felonies, served two prison sentences, and then realized he needed to change his life. And so now he runs a seven-figure business. He's a husband, a father of five children, and He's sober. He started a 12-step program, and he's here today to talk to us about his journey from opioid addiction to prison to now being someone who is of service to his community and also to remind us that his daily struggle, his daily challenges, they're not over. It's something that every day he has to show up for himself for his family, for his work, and for his higher power. Let's get into this episode with Joseph KG. Hey, what's up, man, dude? It's just a, even as you say that, I get goosebumps just remembering that that old me, man. So I'm I'm just grateful to be here, brother. Hope we bring some value to you guys and excited about this conversation. Thank you, brother. So tell me, I like to start off with the question of what got you out of bed this morning. Man, my wife and kids—they get me out of bed every single morning, bro. Um, it, it's number one physically because <laughs> I got a three-year-old and a two-year-old, so they come in and turn the lights on and say, "Daddy, wake up!" Um, but every day, man, I just want to strive to be a better husband and father. For that's that's what I am first. I, I do own a business, like you said. I work with people in recovery, but 
the most important thing to me is being a husband and father. So every day I wake up ready to serve them. So at age 15, you're taking opioids. Usually, you know, for myself, I took them because I had spinal surgery. Was there an injury? What what led you to opioids? Yeah, I wish I could say there was, man. Um, there was no injury. It was, you know, I, I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and I moved to Jacksonville, Florida. So I moved from the north to the south. And a uh, big culture shock for me. You know, I was an athlete up north, so I played basketball. Uh, I played varsity basketball, so I knew everybody. Um, I, I was always around people. And then when I moved here, it was really just trying to figure out who I am, you know, because I felt like I had to be somebody different now. You know, I'm in the South. You know, it, it's very, very different. So one of the most important things when I came here, I just want to fit in, man. I wanted to be accepted by everybody. And that was a tough thing to do because I didn't even know who I was. Now I started becoming everybody that I didn't know who, who I was really, bro. It was like, it's funny. I was, I was saying this the other day, like I I'd hang out with the dudes who started hunting and I would like Google hunting words and like just to sound cool, you know, but then of course they know that I was just capping out. I wasn't really who I was. So they don't want to hang out with me. And throughout this process of trying to fit in and just get, get some friends, man, like, and what's crazy, I look back, I'm like, bro, if I was just myself, I probably would have been fine, you know, but I, I didn't think I would have. I thought I had to be somebody else. And that just led me, I was I was very angry at my dad who moved me here and, and led me down this depression of just feeling like I was a victim, man. I was like so angry at life that life wasn't going the way that I wanted. That's That's really my story, man. It was just me blaming everybody for why life is not what Joseph wants to be. As crazy as it sounds, even today, bro, like if I if I start getting uncomfortable, I look at my problems and why I'm complaining. And most of the time, it's because things aren't going the way I want them to go. Selfish and self-centeredness, bro, that's the root of all my problems. So when I started getting depressed, what I started to do is I found guys who were smoking weed. And that was the first time that I put a drug in my body and was like, okay, I don't have to feel all these problems. I don't have to feel all these emotions. So drugs and alcohol first just became the solution to my problem. And then eventually I found this guy, I was working with him at age 15 and I, I was working just because I want to stay away from my house. I was so angry at my dad. I didn't want to be around him. So I, I just was like, I'm going to work all, even when they told me, Joseph, you don't have to work today. I was in there. I was like, well, I'm working off the clock because I ain't going home. But there was this guy that I just saw him like running around all the time. He was never tired. And I said, bro, how do you do this every day? And he told me it was opiates. And, and I was like, well, look, let me try one. Now he was older. So he was kind of afraid. Like I could tell he was like, man, you know, you're 15. I, I don't want to. And I just looked at him. I said, look, man, you know who I am. I'm going to go get it. So either you can give it to me or I'm going to the hood to get it. Which one are you going to choose? So he reluctantly, he gave me one. And I remember the first time I took an opiate, I said, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Like with utter confidence, just like when you asked me, woke me up this morning, I answered quickly. My wife and kids, I believed I was going to take opiates for the rest of my life. Cause I was running from me. It made me not, I, I ignored my emotions. Every time I felt sad, I took them. If I was happy, I took them. You know, every time I didn't have opiates in my body, I was left with me and I hated me. So the only thing I knew to do to run from me was opiates at the time. And then it turned into Coke, any drug you had, man, if it was cocaine, if it any, the only reason I never got involved in needles, cause till this day, I'm afraid of needles. I pass out when I watch somebody get, get draw my blood. You know what I mean? But any drug, anything you had that got me away from feeling what I had to feel about myself, I was, yes, let me get that. So, uh, let's backtrack a little bit. You're angry at your dad for moving you from Detroit, Michigan 
to we say Jacksonville, Florida. To Jacksonville, Duval. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So you, you there's a loss of friends, I'm assuming. Like you had your boys that you ran with in yeah. Detroit, Michigan. What did you and your friends do back in Michigan? Was it basketball? Like what what hobbies were you guys into? Yeah, basketball was my number one, man. I did that every day. I mean, if I wasn't at the gym, I was outside. I went to school. I had a ball in my hand. Uh, I was showing my wife a picture even when I was seven. Every picture I took, I had a basketball in my hand. I still, I still hoop today. That's still something I do. Um, but, you know, it's crazy. Like, looking back at it, we would go out on the weekends, and we would actually drink. Like, and, and what's crazy is I say that because, like, I remember looking back, and I was like, I was actually a good kid. Because in my own mind at the time, I saw other kids that were smoking weed, they were doing drugs. And, and one thing, I grew up, my family's from the Middle East. So my cousins, when I was like even 12 years old, they would tell me like, hey, look, Joseph, you can drink. Drink with us. Hang out. Drink. No problem. But don't you ever touch drugs. Like, that's one thing they always told me was like, we don't smoke weed. So the clique that I hung out with, when we went out on the weekends, you know, up north, they got basements. So we're in the basements drinking, talking to girls. That was our weekend thing. But my Monday through Friday, it was it was sports. Man, I only went to school because of basketball. Even when I moved here, I got involved in basketball. I dropped out in ninth grade when they told me I couldn't play because I had no reason to go to school if you weren't going to let me play ball. So that was kind of the things we did, man. We, we I felt like it wasn't, like, crazy. Even looking back at it, I was like, man, you know, we were just drinking on the weekends. But looking back, I was like, yeah, Friday and Saturday, we were, we were trying to find some alcohol and, and hang out with the girls. The difference then for me is I didn't realize, like, I was just trying to escape my life. Like, on the weekends, it was escaping. That's what I did. I drank to escape. And then I looked at it like I was just having fun. But I, I do think the problem started there because one thing I know is I was the one who was like, let's get more. <laughs> like everybody was like, bro, just chill. And I'm like, we ran out. Let's go walk around the neighborhood, see who left their garage open, see if they got some beers in the fridge. And they're like, dude, just relax. I'm like, no, no, man, we need to get more. So I, I noticed that trend in the beginning. So even before we get to Jacksonville, Florida, get to Florida, we got this molecule of more, right? Like we got this this dopamine we need that we need that fix we need that rush and, yeah. and so even before the anger at dad before we make the move and i'm bringing this up because a lot of us don't spend a lot of time really unpacking our origin story right a lot of us think that our 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 troubles our trials our tribulations started here and then when we start when we get there we go oh there's there's some other layers to this, right? Like, oh damn, there there was more to it, and and I think that's really important. That's like the you know the power of therapy or journaling and things of, of that nature. You talked about being Middle Eastern. What 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 part of the Middle East specifically are your parents from? So my parents were born and raised in Iraq. Okay. Um, they're Christian Iraqis. So back in the day before all the war happened, you know, there's about three percent of we're called chaldeans we go way back like if you open up the bible you'll see chaldeans are there they go way back in the origins um and there's this family knit community you know my dad owned a business my mom's you know pretty much helped support the family no real alcohol or, or addiction in the family and how was that being middle eastern in detroit michigan like did you find another tribe of middle easterners or did you feel like an yeah. outcast even in detroit michigan no, so I, so in Detroit, there was an outskirt called Dearborn. 97% of them are, are us, are our culture. I mean, like the first, like if you walk down the streets, like you see it's written in Arabic and then English. 
So like, it's funny, my dad still owns a house over there and he just went to Rome and he was like, Hey, I need you to help me. Cause a tree fell down. Every single person I talked to was middle Eastern. So it's like the community there was very knit, very close. Yeah. So at what point you talked about, you know, doing opioids, uh, you know, you're drinking, you, you move. So you kind of lose your community. Like what's the community now in Jacksonville? Is it all white kids? Is it black kids? Like, who, who, what's the, how would you describe the kids you're trying to fit in with now? Everybody, man. Everybody. There ain't no, there ain't no black, white, Middle Eastern, you know, and it's funny because and I'm glad you said that. Like, even in my culture, we were so big on staying close to your people. You know what I mean? Like, these are our people. So as funny as it is, my dad's so old school, like he wanted me to marry a Middle Eastern woman. My wife is, is not Middle Eastern. So like, even that was like, why are you going from different? I was even raised thinking that way, that if you're not like us, you're just different and we can talk to you, but we're not going to associate with you. Well, what's crazy is people told me that when I got out of prison, they don't want to talk to me because I was a felon. And I was, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is how it feels to be looked at differently because of something that has nothing to do with who I am as a person. So right now, man, I got all kinds. I mean, I got friends who are black. I, I'm sponsoring a Hispanic dude. I mean, my, you look at my circle, I laugh, man. I, I tell them like, we're a funny bunch of group, man. We're, we're so different from each other, but the people that are in my life today, we all got the same mission. We're all trying to help people. So I don't care who you are. You're white, you're straight, you're not. I don't matter to me. What mission are you on? What are you about in life right now? And if I can relate to that, then let's, let's change the world together. I don't care where you come from. So I got to assume that if at the in ninth grade you drop out of school because there's no basketball, is that where the life of crime, where these 37 felonies come into play? That's definitely where it was, man. I was, um, you know, I was going to school. And what happened, if uh, you probably know who Tim Tebow is, he went to my high school, Nice High School. Well, that was the first high school I played basketball at. Well, what happened there, long story short, was you had to live in the county to hoop there. I didn't live in the county. Neither did Tim Tebow, but he moved. His parents were like, all right, we'll move. We'll live in the county so we can go to the school. My dad was like, I'm not moving. Just go to another school and hoop there. Well, when I transferred, they were like, the season already started because you're a transfer. You can't start. And I was like, well, I'm not going to school. So what I just, it's funny. I, I dropped, I wasn't even going to school for six months. Back then they would call your house and leave a message. So I would sit at home every day and delete the messages so my dad wouldn't see it. So for six months, I would leave the house and my dad thinks I'm going to school. Well, there's times I would just sit in the car, smoke weed. I'd go to the basketball court and I'm just shooting hoops, waiting for my friends to get out of school. And then what happened was with the drugs, man, at that point, I was I had so much free time. I was using a lot of drugs and when and opiates are expensive. So I don't care how much you work. So at that point, I had to steal. I would steal from my dad. I would steal from if somebody left their car open at three o'clock in the morning. I, my mind would say that's a gift for me. I did anything I could to get money so I could run from myself. Like, that's what I was doing, man. I was, I I'd had to get, I was so obsessed every day when I woke up, how do I get money and how do I get drugs today? That was my only accomplishment of the day. That was it. I wasn't focused on anything else. I didn't care about a shower. I didn't care about a girl. I didn't care about I, all I cared about was getting money to get high. And of course, eventually that catches up to you, man. So like when I was 18 years old, I posted an ad on a Craigslist to tell somebody that I had a, a computer to sell just because I knew they were going to show up with money. And I robbed that person. And, and, and eventually I ended, ended up getting caught. You know, I got away with one and two, and then eventually they pinned all of them on me because they set me up and I got caught. So at age 18, uh, that's where I first faced 13 felonies. 
Um, and I got lucky to get two years that time. And, and so what happened the second time that you went to prison that didn't happen the first time that then you're now turning your life around? Yeah, it's a great question, bro. Like what's crazy is I, I've, every time somebody asks me about my first prison sentence, how it goes, it's so weird when I look back and I reflect on the first time I went to prison, it was almost like I was still a kid and I didn't even realize what was going on. I was so, I so ignored the reality of my situation that I just thought, all right, man, you're going to go home in a couple of years, just go to school, do the right things. I wasn't even thinking about staying away from drugs and alcohol. I was just like, yo, just use on the weekends. You know what I mean? Like, don't, don't get high every day where you're going back to stealing, maybe find a good job where you can make enough money so you can still get high on Saturday and Sunday. So that's how I thought when I was 18, I was just in prison, not trying to change. I go to prison at 22 years old and I, I got a three-year sentence. Now there's drugs in prison. So I, it's not like I changed my mind at that time. I still got high, but what ended up changing was I go to a work release program with a year of my sentence. And for, so work release program for anybody who doesn't know is they pretty much, if you were good for the first two years, which I was just not, I'd never got caught for anything I did inside of prison. Um, they send you to a place where they give you an ankle monitor in society. You live at a halfway house. They let you get a job and try to work your way to coming home. Well, if you don't, if you violate there, they send you back to complete the rest of your sentence. So with four months left of my sentence, I violated. You know, what's crazy, I didn't violate for having drugs or anything. It was just I was carrying extra money on my pocket I wasn't supposed to have. And I got sent back and I sat in a 10 by 10 cell, man, and I'll never forget this day. And this was the first time in my life that I was scared. Because I realized if you don't change something now, this is what's going to be your life. And the reason I realized it is when I was in that 10 by 10 cell, there's this old cat, man. He was about maybe 60, 70 years old. And he pretty much told me he'd been in and out of prison his whole life, seven, eight times. His whole life is in and out of jail. And he just looked at me. He was like, this is going to be just like you. You're going to be just like me. And when he said that, it's almost like the first time in my life that I sat there and was like, if I don't change, I'm going to be like this guy. And for the first time in my life, I said, I don't want that. I want something different. Now, the fear was, I don't know how to stay sober. I was so, all I prayed that day, what I did at that moment was I got on my knees and I prayed, man. I said, I said, look, God, I know you didn't make me, create me to be somebody who's in and out of jail, spend the rest of his life in prison. I believe I'm better than that. I know I got some good things in me, but I just need you to remove this obsession of wanting to use drugs because as crazy as it is, I still was thinking about when I leave this cell, I'm going to go on the prison compound where everybody knows who I was. Everybody knew me. And I knew 100% fact they were going to come to me and be like, hey, here you go. You want this and just give it to me because that was the type of reputation I should say I had inside of there. Well, I was so scared because I wanted to say no when they come up to me, but I was so afraid because I wanted to say, yeah, I didn't understand that craziness going on inside of my head. So I just prayed and asked God to remove that from me. He didn't exactly remove it. But when the first person that came up to me said, Hey, bro, here you go. I just looked and I was like, I'm good. I don't want it. Now, I think what happened if I were to assess was people thought I was sketchy because all of a sudden I'm coming out here saying I don't want nothing. So I, I don't know if they thought like I was a snitch, but nobody talked to me, man. I was isolated. I was just like, nobody wanted to say hello. Nobody wanted to work out with me. I mean, if I needed something, nobody wanted to talk to me, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. So the change that happened to, to kind of bring that all back into play was I looked at my life and realized I got to make a change. And I reached out to a higher power greater than myself inside. You know, when I was in prison, I didn't have really any positive people. Now, there probably was positive people there. But like I said, nobody wanted to associate with me. 
but then that was the first time I knew like, cause I had stints where I was sober for like 20, 30 days. And I loved who I was in those moments. So I would look back at that guy for who was sober for 20, 30 days and thought, you know what? I could be that guy. It's just the drugs and the alcohol that turns me away from that. So when I come home, I'm not going to focus on making money. I'm not going to focus on getting a girl because I know if I could stay sober, I can do all that. I knew I could. I had that belief in me that if I could just stay sober, I'll get everything I ever wanted in my life. And the reality was I wasn't even th- like if I look at my life today, you couldn't I wouldn't even thought it would be like this, to be honest with you. bro. I just I was like, if I could stay sober and get a job where I'm making 15 dollars an hour and just be clean and one day have a family, that was that's all I wanted. I just wanted to figure out how to stay sober. So when I came home at that time was the first time I said, I'm going to attack my sobriety and staying sober. Like I, I attacked when I needed money to get drugs. I mean, if I told you all the things I had to do to get money, I was, dude, I was a hardworking dude, man. <laughs> like I was committed. I was, I, I would put people in places to get their money. So I had these gifts that God gave me. I was just using them wrong. So I knew if I could stay sober, man, I'll be able to accomplish whatever I want to accomplish and really just lay my head at night and be happy with who I am. Because that was the other thing, bro. I just wanted to be okay with who I was. And I'm holding on to all this guilt in prison with all the things and the people that I stole from, my family that I put them through. There's some people that couldn't sleep in their house at night because they were afraid someone's going to break in again. And I put that on. So I'm I'm carrying this weight that I'm judging myself because of all this weight that I'm carrying. I don't know what to do with it. You know, and that's where I turned to a program that taught me what I could do with. I could use that stuff now. Uh, it sounds like you're talking about the 12 step program. That's right. And so when you get out of did you start that in prison or did you start that once you got out of prison? No. So I was introduced to it before. So I knew about it because what happened was there was a time in between the first and second prison sentence where I got caught on another crime. And my parents hired a lawyer. And what the lawyer said was, if you go to rehab, it's going to look better for your case. So I just said, fine, I'm going to go to rehab. It's better than jail. I wasn't willing like to listen to what they talked about, but I was introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a 12-step program I'm involved in today. And so I knew about it. I made a couple friends in there. you know. So I would always keep up with them and see these dudes that were in treatment, like living life. And I could tell like they're with their families. They're not like, like, I'm like, dude, are these dudes sober? This is kind of crazy. So I was introduced to it before. So when I was in prison, I had, I found the book of the 12 step program and started reading it. And man, everything I read, bro, I was like, these dudes are talking about me. You know what I mean? They're talking about me. This is me right here. So I knew the first thing I said when I come home is I'm going to reach out some way to find somebody over there. Because this is where I think I could I could handle this problem. Like I knew I could make money and do other stuff, but I needed to find people that could help me with my drug problem. Because I didn't understand what was going on in Joseph's mind. It was it baffled me, man. Like I don't want to get high, but I want to. I don't understand what's going on. So that so when I got out, I reached out to actually one of the guys I was in rehab with, and he was like, "Yeah, bro, I go to this twelve step program. You want to come to a meeting with me?" And as soon as I went to my first meeting, I was like, "I'm home, bro. I'm gonna reach out to these dudes." And I just saw people who were like living life and people trying to help people. I was like, this is the craziest thing ever. But if this works, let's do it. And I just gave it my all. Uh, Now, how hard was that, though? Because like you said, you're home, you're back in the same old environment. And and every like you said, everybody knows what you need and and what you're about. Hard, hard was it to isolate yourself from, you know, your past so that you can build on your future? You know, what's crazy is like at the time I thought it was hard. 
because but the one thing that stopped me, bro, I was for the first time in my life, I was scared out of my mind. Like I was scared of drugs. Like I was so afraid of making the wrong decision to be around the wrong person. And all of a sudden I'm getting high again. I was so afraid of that because I knew this was the first time in my life. I said, if I get high again, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison or I'm going to die. And I knew that. So I was so afraid that even when it was, you know, it's crazy when you say, when I say it was hard, like the hard part was it was uncomfortable because I'm not used to calling somebody and being like, hey, bro, I'm really having a hard day, man. I don't know why. I remember the first time I got involved in, in the first like 30 days, it wasn't hard for my mind because I was going to a meeting every day. I was talking to somebody every day and I was working. So like my life evolved eight to five. I worked. And then after work, I went to a meeting. And after my meeting, I went to lunch with these guys. And then I went to the gym and I come home. So I, I made my day centered around where I wasn't in my head. It got me out of my head. But the first time I remember it rained, I was, I was working at a fence company and my boss called. I said, Hey, we're not working today. There's no rain. And I, I was left with this idle time. And my mind said, dude, it'd be really cool to smoke a joint and go like watch a movie right now and just chill. And at first second, I was like, Whoa, where'd that shit come from? <laughs> Excuse my lane. Where'd that come from? You know what I mean? What, what's going on? And I got scared again. I was like, Oh, like, I almost thought like I was going to go do it. Cause I thought it. And I was like, why am I thinking this? What was uncomfortable was picking up the phone and talking to somebody and being like, hey, bro, can I I want to tell you what just happened in my head. <laughs> like, I, I just got this thought and, and that was uncomfortable. So the hard part was doing something that was just uncomfortable to me. But I remember what he said to me that day. He said, Joseph, if you're doing something that's uncomfortable to you, that means you're doing something different. I don't want you to do anything that's comfortable because what's comfortable for you is picking up the phone, calling a drug dealer, getting high and robbing and stealing, and getting money. That's what's comfortable for you because that's what you've done for so long. So it's all right that it's uncomfortable because that just means it's different. And and all of a sudden I started to realize, wait a second, I'm not, you know, I would judge myself for this stuff. You know, I would judge myself for my thoughts. I judge myself for my past. But the more I just got it out and talked to another person about it. So when, but now when you, when you ask me that question, I look back at it and I'm like, man, that wasn't hard at all. If that's what I had to do to accomplish the sense of peace that I have today, it really wasn't hard, but when you're in it, you know what I mean? It seems like it's the hardest thing in the world, but I had no alternative. I, I didn't have another choice. It was either go get high and go either end up the rest of your life in prison. Cause I didn't know how to stay sober without on my own terms. I've tried it. I've tried to stay sober on. I just want to be clean. Like I've done, you know how many times I told myself I want to be sober and I would try to like, just turn my phone off or like delete my Facebook or my MySpace at the time. But then all of a sudden I'm like finding a way to, to go back online and just finding, I, I tried it on my own and I never was able to. So for the first time in my life, my fear propelled me forward every time it was hard. I'm so glad you brought that up because a lot of times we're trying to get rid of our fear. You know, there's so many books on be fearless. 50 cent has a book, be fearless. Yeah. And what you're sharing, it sounds like is that the fear actually, you saw the ghost of Christmas future, right? It was that old guy in, in prison. He's like, yo, I'm, I've been in and out. And so that gave you fear, right? Uh, man, I'm going to end up like that guy. And then, you know, but we can't just have fear by itself, right? We, we need to have something where we're not just something that we're running from, but something that we're running towards and moving towards. And that for you was sobriety. That for you was family. That to you was, you know, uh, you know, having a job that paid $15 an hour, like, you know, th these weren't uh, major aspirations, but it was something that that kept you grounded and tethered. That's right. Well, how do you handle 
uncomfortable emotions now? Are you still calling your sponsor or are you calling your sponsor and other people? I'm calling my sponsor and other people. And I'm also like, what's crazy is if I schedule my day, like, you know, it's crazy when I think about what's going on in my mind. It's all, bro, every time if I got something going on in my mind, it's because I'm, I'm stuck in self, bro. Like, I, that's that's what I notice all the time. I'm just stuck in self. So, like, if I can every day when I wake up, I can sit there and thank God for some things I'm grateful for today. Wake up and think about other people. Maybe have a day. Like, if my day's scheduled where I'm thinking about other people, I'm helping somebody in the program or I'm doing something of service, I don't have those tough days. But the days where I have those tough days, which I still have, even when, even when I do all that stuff. You know what I mean? Look, I operate a business, man. I'm trying to operate a podcast. I'm mentoring people. I got a family of five. I just opened up another bit. I got a lot going on. There's still problems in my life today. But one thing my problems don't do and I try to not let them do is I, I don't let them control me. Like you were just talking about fear. Like I think when people talk about being fearless, it's because they don't want their fear to control you, which I understand that. But the reality is we have to be aware of our fears. Why do we have these fears and what do we do with them? Because now we can actually because the reality is we all got fears. Somebody who tells me I'm not afraid of nothing, there's something they're afraid of. They're just pushing it down and maybe not talking about it. And, and I, maybe I can speak for myself because I want to talk about what other people do. But at, but for today, what I do now is I recognize like I it's it's kind of funny, man, if you think about it. Like right now, if I get thirsty, man, I just have it. Bro. I reach for my water. You reach for your coffee, bro. We're thirsty. We don't think about reaching for the cup of water. Why is that? Because we've been doing it so much. We've done it so much that just our body is used to and our mind is reaching. I'm thirsty. Let me go reach for a cup of water or let me go reach for something to drink. Well, the same thing is when I'm having a, when I started an early recovery and I had a hard day or I had a problem and I called somebody or I just served somebody else. You know, those are two things that I always do. I should say three. One, I pray and I ask God to remove these fears in my mind. The second thing I do is I pick up the phone and I just talk to somebody and get it out of my head. Because what's crazy is sometimes the things in our head like I could paint a crazy picture of all the fears that I had not provided for my family. My pair of glasses says, oh, my gosh, man, if I make one mistake, my family's going to be broken. I'm going to be living in a trailer tomorrow because that's how afraid I am of, of that's that's one of my fears not provided for my family. But I pick up the phone and I share with somebody and they're like, hey, bro, number one, are you, are you in control of your life or is God like number one? You can just do everything you can in your in your power to do what you're doing. But your fear sounds like it's controlling you, man. I'm like, I know. man. I don't know why. I don't know what made my head go there. He's like, well, what you would you do today? What was your day look like? I'm like, well, I went to the gym. I went and played basketball. And, I, you know, I was just at the house. And he's like, hey, did you do anything for anybody else? And that's always what my one of my, somebody, my mentors would tell me, like, what would you do for somebody else today? Because it sounds like you're stuck in self. And it's crazy that, like, most of the times, man, when I got a problem, I'm so worried about myself. And the steps teach me. I, I give it to God, man. And some people hear that and they're like, well, don't you got to do something? I said, well, here's my analogy. It's like being in a rowboat with God. I'm going to row. I'm going to let God steer. So if I'm sitting here afraid of where this boat is going, I'm rowing and trying to take the wheel from God. But at the end of the day, I can just row, man. All I do is I keep rowing, I keep rowing. And if something's going on in my mind, look, listen, the other day, bro, there was a guy who just got out of prison and he was about three hours away. I had so much going on in my life. I had a, my assistant who I had to fire because she was stealing from me. My daughter, I found out on the way there, my daughter was got an ear infection. But I'm driving to Gainesville, which is three hours away from me, to deliver clothes to one of the guys I was in prison with. So I delivered clothes with him. I sat with him for two hours, took him to get a Hardy's burger. When I left, I met with another guy in recovery, right? Now it's five, six o'clock, and I'm coming home, and I'm playing with my kids. You think I thought about any of my problems that day? That was a great day for me. 
I wasn't thinking about my problem. My problem, and, and the reality is what's crazy about our problems, a lot of times we solve them, man. You know, a lot of times our problems become bigger than we really think it is. So at the end of the day, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about those problems. So that those are some few little things now that I'm trying to do every day to make sure that, hey, man, your problems aren't really that bad, man. <laughs> so, so talk to me about what your prayer sounds like. And the reason why I'm asking is, you know, I'm also in a 12-step program. And one of the things that comes up is this idea of God and higher power. And what I love about the 12-step program is that, that at least that I'm a part of is you can make the higher power whatever you want it to be. For yeah. some people, it's the group. It's God. It's, uh, you know, it's a book. It, it's whatever. It's, it's a tree. Whatever you are, you can pray to whatever you want to. When you're praying to God, what does that say? Does it sound the same every day? Or is it just, please, God, remove this temptation from me? Like, what does that look like? Is it, is it an hour? Is it a quick kneel? Yeah, so my prayer is literally, so So my belief is I'm a Christian, right? Again, this is just like you said, it's the one thing I love about the 12 steps. Is I don't have to push my belief on you at all. I got guys I sponsor now that, hey, they don't believe in, in Jesus. I'm like, you don't have to. I'm not telling you to. But you need to believe in someone greater than you. So when I'm making a prayer, I almost, and I, and I joke about this, but I, it's literally how I pray. Have you ever seen the show The Fairly Godparents when you were a kid? There's a show, man, this dude, Timmy, he would just ask the fairy godparents what he wanted, and they would, poof, it, it'd be there. So when he had a problem, he'd say, I want this bully to be gone, poof. So when I'm dealing with a problem, I'm almost talking to God like he's sitting right next to me. And I could just, like an example, if I'm dealing with fear and I'm afraid of, of what's going on in my life and if, if, if am I going to put my family in a financial situation so I never allow them, so I have to tell them no to something. You know, I always want to be able to provide for them. And I'm struggling with that in some area. Sometimes I get on my knees and pray. And I do that because for me personally, it puts me in this like submission. I got pride and ego, man. I, I need to, I need to humble myself a lot. And when I get on my knees just for me personally, it just puts me in this place of humbleness, you know, where I'm, I'm not me and I'm talking to a God that's greater than me. And my prayer is just real. I say, God, listen, I got this fear, man. I'm, I'm really concerned about providing for my family. And I know my life ain't, ain't centered around me and I'm trying to do everything I can, but can you remove this stress from me? Because I'm just stressed about this right now. I'm constantly looking at my bank account and I'm worried. And the reality is, it's because I want to run the show. You know, I want, I want life to be easy and simple, but I know it ain't always going to be that way. But like, man, please remove this like fear in my mind. I'm, I can't sleep at night sometimes. And I'm worried when it came to my business, I, I said, God, just take over my business. I'm going to keep moving put people in my life that, that I could either help or that could want my business. So it, it's literally, I'm, I'm ta I'm thinking about the things in my heart and I'm spitting them out of my mouth. You know, it's, it's not like I have to like res recite some crazy prayer. It's just an honest, open conversation with the higher power as if he's sitting there listening that he wants to take that burden from me. Sometimes I'm praying for other people. One of the prayers I pray every day is God put somebody in my life today that I can help or God, if I'm sharing a message, allow somebody to hear it that's ready to hear it so I could be of service to somebody else. So uh, the easiest way to answer that is just honest prayers. That's what I'm always telling guys like, bro, just be honest with God as if he's sitting there with you. You don't, I'm not asking you to know who he is, to understand what he looks like. It's very simple, man. Just believe that a power there's, do you believe there's a power greater than you? Yes. You're there, bro. You're there. You believe in something. If you keep working these things, that power will reveal itself to you. But just do it and, and have honest conversations with God. And a lot of times I find when people can do that, they can, whether it's a spiritual experience or not, but all of a sudden they, the weight sometimes is removed. Or 
I always say that weight ain't meant for you to carry. You know, our problems in our life, I don't think it's meant for us to carry. Give them up to God. You know, as part of the 12-step program, I know that we have to make, uh, it encourages us, I don't say have to, it encourages us to make amends. Mm -hmm. How did you do that, right? Because you talked about robbing people, stealing, all these different things. Did you seek out all these people who were, who were you know, victims of those actions? Or how, how did you, in your heart, make amends? Because I think there are a lot of people who have done things and it's hard for them to forgive themselves because they feel like they haven't been able to meet that person face-to-face and say, I'm sorry. How did you make amends in your heart? Yeah, well, first I want to add to what you just said because I think a lot of people want to make the amends when they're doing it. And that's why they're carrying that weight because they want to go to that person and say, I'm sorry. But why do they want to go to that person and say, I'm sorry? Because they're hoping that person is going to remove that from them. So they're putting an expectation on someone else who might say, hey, man, it's okay. But what happens if you are putting all that expectation on somebody to say, you know what? I'm carrying this weight because I haven't got to go back to that person that I did wrong and tell them I'm sorry. Well, I, I would ask that person, what would you do if you went there and said, I'm sorry? And they say, get out of my face. I don't forgive you. you would you feel better? So our expect we can't put that expectation on somebody else. So when I made my amends, it was to clean my own side of the street, regardless of what they did or not. So I know I did my part. So now one thing about the amends is, so obviously my victims, I'm not allowed, I wasn't allowed to make contact with them. So anybody that was a victim of my crimes, I can't make contact with them. But the I make a living amends now that says, you know what? I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to hurt people. I'm not going to, my living amends today is to make sure I don't have to have anybody else on my amends as a victim to Joseph. So that's how I make my living amends. And then I pray for those people. That That's what helped me, man. I prayed. I said, God, you know, I, I, anybody that I hurt, I pray for their families. Because one thing I know is I couldn't change my past. I can just change how I deal with it. And I, and, and the reality is that some of those people, maybe they're dealing with it. Maybe they weren't, you know, I couldn't change it. So I just pray for them. I prayed for all my victims. That, you know, God, if, if they if they lost sleep, if they lost stress, you know, I know God, you'll use it. So I pray for their families. You know, I pray for everything that, that's ever happened to them. I hope they're all OK. And slowly but surely, as I continue to pray for the ones that I couldn't go to directly, man, the guilt was removed. The guilt was removed. As crazy as it sounds, I was actually at a Walmart a year and a half ago with one of my victims, man. And they saw me and, and they walked up to me because they've been watching my stuff on Instagram. And they said, hey, man, I'm glad to see you doing good. And I was able, God, and I, I call it God, but I was able to talk to them and say, hey, man, you know, is there anything I can do to make these things better? You know what I mean? This is where I was, where I am now. So that that opportunity presented itself. But as I prayed for them, God removed that feeling. And, and the victims that, you know, weren't of my crimes that maybe were friends of mine or family of mine, number one, I never went and said, I'm sorry. You know, and that's the one thing that I, I I went there specifically to say, hey, listen, first I reached out and said, hey, if, if you have five minutes of your time, I'm part of a program and I, I'm, I'm looking to be able to speak to you part of my recovery. If you're open to have a quick five minute conversation with me, I'd love to have that conversation. I have no expectations of you. You don't have to say anything. If you can just give me five minutes of your time, I'd appreciate that. And all of them said, yeah, man, absolutely. What's up? What's going on? And I, I some of them, I would meet them. Some of them would be a phone call. Um, usually I would ask my sponsor at the time because I was so young. I was so afraid of making the wrong decision that I didn't know what the right one was. So I sought counsel from my sponsor. And a lot of them, I just went to them and said, hey, look, you know, when I stole from you, this is what was going on in my life. I was in my active addiction. 
I don't remember the amount of money I stole from you. And I, but I do want to be able to pay you back. Is there any way that I could make things better? I'd like to financially pay you back, right? At the time, I wasn't in a financial state, but I'd like to say, hey, as I'm working my job, I'd like to pay you every week back what I took from you. Some people wouldn't take it. Some people said, hey, I remember, yeah, you saw it was 250 bucks, you know? And like, hey, it ain't about the money, bro. You know, I, you know, I'm glad you're doing good. But I would say, hey, I know it's not, but this is what I could do for you. And I'm going to make sure I get that money to you. You know what I mean? And, and sometimes they say, hey, if that's what you feel to do best. So every situation was different. But but that was one thing I was actually looking forward to. A lot of people are afraid of doing that, man. I was I was looking forward to doing that, man, to be able to go to people. But the big part is I had no expectation of them. Some people told me I don't want to talk to you. There's nothing you can say to me. So all I did, again, I prayed for them just like I did for my victims. I prayed that they would remove the anger from them, that, you know, they wouldn't have to carry that weight with them. And I asked God to remove that weight from me. So you're in a 12-step program. You are, you have a sponsor. You're sponsoring someone. Um, can you talk, was there any other part of your rehab program that, that helped you, you know, one, navigate the uncomfortable emotions and two, help get you off drugs and get you started? Like, did you go to therapy? Were there books that you read, mm-hmm. meditation, journal? Like, were there other things that you incorporated into your life? Man, pod, that's why I have a podcast now, bro. Podcasts and YouTube were like my music because, you know, what's crazy is there was so much going on in my mind. I don't know if you know Eric Thomas is, but the hip hop preacher was like the first guy. I'm from Detroit, so I loved him, man. I I, I went to just his conference the other day and and I was I was always just I wanted some positive stuff in my head because, you know, it's you know, you go to these meetings, you have conversations like even if you go to these conventions, man, you get hyped up, but then life happens. And, and I was always stuck in my head. And like the first time I caught a video, it was like a motivational video. Man, I just felt better. You know what I mean? And, and now there's a fine line because some people just want the motivation without the action. But but at the time, I knew I was taking action. But there was times like at work and I'm listening to these dudes talk about all this negative stuff. And I'm like, man, I, how do I get out of it? And somebody told me, bro, what are you listening to? Like, what do you do throughout the day? Are you reading any books? Are you like... It's great. You go to a meeting for one hour and you talk to me for 30 minutes. That's an hour and a half. What are you doing the rest of your day? And I was like, nothing. And it, so I, that's when I started picking up books, man. I, I was the first time I started actually reading books outside of the AA program. Just books on like how to win friends and influence people. I just wanted to read books to learn about stuff. And then I heard about Think and Grow Rich. And then I heard about John Maxwell, you know, and then I read Eric Thomas's book. And I fell in love with because what this did was it helped me change my mind. You know, it was almost like I was I was almost working out my mind. Like we go to the gym to work out. Well, that's and then same thing. When I was at work, I was a headphone. I called myself a headphone warrior. Man, I had my headphones in. I was ready to listen to to a bunch of podcasts. My wife laughs at me today. She's like, babe, you're like a walking podcast. You listen to every time you're talking. It sounds like you're you're talking into a podcast to somebody. I'm like, because it's been programmed in me, man. I'm just trying to give out all this stuff that's up here to other even my kids. man. I'm just like spit trying to. <laughs> trying to pour life into them. And that's why I do the podcast now. And those are things, the podcast, YouTube, like right now, if you're having a tough day and you're dealing with depression, you could literally YouTube. And that's what I say about, they talk about the five people that are closest to you in your circle. Well, dude, I had mentors that were virtual mentors. Gary Vee was my mentor. Ed Milet was my mentor. Eric Thomas, they were, I was listening to them. You know what I mean? So, so I would encourage somebody to type in YouTube, how to deal with depression, type in the podcast, I'm dealing with depression. Anything you're dealing with right now, there's information out there 
that you can just take in to help you understand. Now, I definitely think when you talked about therapy, I encourage some people to go talk to somebody. That's to me, that's what kind of 12 step is, but I'm not a licensed therapist. You know what I mean? Like, I, I so maybe there is a therapist you can go to, but seeking out that help for me, I didn't, you know, I had, I had mentors and then just lit, reading books and YouTube and podcasts. And then obviously I created habits of myself, you know, working out that made me feel better about myself every day. You know what I mean? Just, just feeling better, looking healthier. I was just trying to gain that confidence in myself in a way to where I was okay. You know what I mean? Like daily habits, like it's crazy of, of the habits I had in my addiction I just reverse them with working with people, doing podcasts. I mean, it's funny. If you look at my day today, man, it's filled with chaos. You know what I mean? Like I'm working after this. I'm doing something else. I'm just scheduling stuff in my day. But 95% of it is what am I doing for other people? So so that's the one thing I did a lot, man, in the beginning. Let me ask you this. You're married. How old are you now, Joseph? I'm 31. So 31, married, five children. Are they all girls? So the five children I have, so my wife is nine years older than me. So she had three children from a previous marriage. So there's a 19-year-old that, so she had a 19-year-old. She's 19 right now. We got a 17-year-old. So 19-year-old's a boy, 17-year-old's a girl. We got an eight-year-old, that's a boy. So those are her three kids from a previous marriage that I've been in their life for almost the past five years. And then my wife and I together have two daughters, a three-year-old daughter and a two-year-old daughter. So how do you set boundaries in the relationship. And the reason why I'm asking is this, I, I, I've had other entrepreneurs, people who are making seven figures, and they say that the biggest challenge is, you know, not giving too much of themselves over to the relationship, not losing themselves in the relationship. You know, when you're married and there's five kids, how do you set boundaries up? Because I'm sure there are times where your wife has, uh, expectations or, you know, putting yeah. demands on you. The job is also doing that. And then five kids. How do you say, here, let me be more specific. How do you say no? Yeah. So when it comes to my wife and kids, man, when like when I'm home, I'm present. That's the truth. I'm very present. You know, what I find is like, even talking to entrepreneurs who say like, man, I'm, you know, my, my, my wife doesn't understand, you know, she's mad at me because I'm working late but she just doesn't understand. And what I always say is, well, it sounds like it's it's a root issue. Like you were talking about, we go back to the thing. Well, what is your wife just wants time with you? So what are you doing to give her that time? What are you doing to help her understand? So it's like, it's crazy sometimes when we talk about setting boundaries with people, like we have to say no. Like when it comes to my wife and kids, I'm a husband and father first, man. Like I built my business. I could make another 150 grand in my business by being the salesman of my business and not hire another. Sale. I could do it. I got the time, but it, I know it'll come in the way of my family. So I just don't, I built my business structured so it could operate itself. So I can be around my family when I want to now to, to everything else. Like my wife and I were just talking about this yesterday. She just started working with me. And now she's got people who are like her sponsors, like, hey, you need to be going to detox and be doing this. My wife is like, man, I feel like I'm doing too much. So we assess our life at that point. We sit down and we say, hey, there's there's areas in our life. There's three areas in our life being being a, a husband or a wife and a father, my business and my recovery. So and spirituality, in my mind, is inside of all those three. You know what I mean? So like when I'm when I'm being a husband and father first, I'm serving God because he gave me my wife and kids. 
You know, when I'm helping other people, I'm serving God because he gave me that gift. When I'm helping my business, I'm serving God because that's where he served. These are the things he gave me. So I look at those areas of my life and I just reflect. Like I had to do that just recently. I had so much more time in my podcast world, in my schedule that I, I had. And, and I looked, I was like, wow, I got eight things a week for podcasts and only two things a week for sponsoring people. Okay, well, where can I... Like it's, it, people are looking for this perfect balance, man. It's just restructuring our life. I got seven different hats I wear, man. I'm a husband of one hat, a father, entrepreneur, business owner, business leader, leader in my community, leader in my church, leader in recovery. So how do you stay balanced? I don't. Sometimes one of the hats are dusty. I'm just always looking at it, man. Like I, and that's what I had to do just two weeks ago. I sat down and I'm starting to realize, man, I, I don't have enough time to work with guys. I got a couple guys wanting to work with them. I just don't have the time. Well, let me look at where my time is at right now. My time is, holy cow, I'm just, because literally three months ago, I wanted to do more podcasts and I did the same thing and I scheduled more podcasts. Well, then all of a sudden I got this feeling I want to work with guys more. And I just, re, like, I think we don't have to judge ourselves in those moments and just pause, reflect and say, where in my life? Because the reality is this, man, somebody who tells me, you know, hey, my wife just doesn't understand because I'm just trying to work and she wants me to say yes to everything. I asked them, dude, have you paused yet to sit down with your wife? Are you talking with your wife about can, can you restructure your schedule? What's the most important? There's times I do have to sacrifice my time and I got to come home late with my family. But am I communicating that with my wife? I just know if I'm present when I'm home, my wife is not worried about if I'm coming home late because she knows when Joseph's home, he's home. My phone is off. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not trying to make a video. My Even my sponsees know like, hey, if it's an emergency, like you can call me at the seven, but I structure them to be able to call me before because we got a lot of time in the day we could talk. So that's that's the synopsis, quick context of it all. I love that, man. I love how you, uh, you know, you summarize that in terms of pausing, reflecting, and then restructuring. Because what I love about the pause is it's like, let's just take a breath. And let's just step back and just and then let's reflect. Let's look at I, I love I really love that part where you said I I I'm always looking at it. I'm never balanced, but I'm always looking at it to see what I need to restructure. Because like you said, sometimes the hat's gonna get dusty. You can't keep everything balanced all the time. Life is uh is constantly changing and shifting, and the world is changing and shifting, and your kids are getting older, and a wife, you know, all these different things are happening. But are yeah. we taking time to look at it? And then are we are we able to have those uncomfortable conversations with ourselves and then with the people in our lives? Yeah. Uh, so tell us about your business and what it is briefly. Yeah. So it's a fence company. We do residential fencing like, you know, the white picket fence. Pretty much people who buy a house here in Florida, um, they want to get a fence up for their dogs or their kids. Um, and that's what we do, man. It's crazy how it started. I was just putting up fence out of my Camry. They were delivering materials to the job. And then all of a sudden, you know, that's actually came from a conversation with my wife, that un uncomfortable conversation a year into my business. You know, I'm, I'm leaving the house at five o'clock and I'm coming home at eight 30. So tired, man. So worn out. And my wife was just telling me like, how long are you going to do this? Like, we love you. And I know you're doing this for our family. And I, and I, I love you for that. But like, I mean, how like I would sacrifice one of these jobs you did that thousand bucks just to have you home. And that hit me in the, in the gut, man. It really because I'm a husband and father first, man. That, that's that's what I am. I'm a husband and father first. So I paused and I reflected and I and I thought of rich dad, poor dad book. 
And I said, how can I turn this into something where my wife doesn't ever have to tell me that again? I don't want my wife to ever have to tell me, okay, babe, we've been sacrificing for a year. When are you going to change? We, you know, our daughter, I don't want to miss anything out on my daughter's life. You know, my wife was pregnant at the time. I don't want to be working all day and being that dad who just came home at eight o'clock, so tired, not able to play with his kids. So I paused and I structured my company to operate to a place I can get it to where, yes, I can be at work, but if I want to come home at four or five, I can't, you know, so now we got 16 people on our team. Um, you know, my wife is now working with me. My brother's doing sales for us. Um, you know, this year we'll, we'll close about $5 million in sales. I'm sorry, $4 million in sales. Let me get that number right next. We've been talking about 5 million cause that's our goal for next year. So it's, it's still on my head right now. Um, so this year we'll close out uh, estimated to do 4 million, man. And, and bro, it, even saying that, like, it's nuts. It blows my mind <laughs> thinking about like, how the heck did you go from somebody could like, I remember the first time someone paid me cash. I was like, holy smokes. I used to like, wish I could find this type of cash and I'm actually going to go to the bank and deposit it, man. So it's, it's just a blessing, bro, that we've, we've intentionally built this business the way I want it to. And my dad's an entrepreneur. He's 70 years old, man. He owns a dry cleaners and he still, he, one thing I never wanted to do was what my dad did. My dad just created a job for himself, man. You know, we just went a trip to Myrtle beach with our, with my kids. My mom was there. My dad said, I can't come cause I got to work. And I looked at my dad. I'm like, dad, you got a lady who can literally work for you. Like she's good. You could try. He's like, no, no, I don't leave my business. He still thinks it's crazy that I, I I let like somebody else go put up a fence when I could go do it. I'm, he's like, you're 31. You're paying. I'm like, I know, but I built my business this way. You know, I built my business to, and, and thank God I, you know, I make good money now. You know what I mean? But I, it was intentional. And that's what I would share to entrepreneurs who are building their businesses intentionally build it the way you want it to build and don't just create a job for yourself. That's what I never wanted to do, man. I love that. And then, you know, I've heard you talk about books on business, rich dad, poor dad, uh, mm -hmm. think and grow rich, how to win friends, influence people. And then of course you got the big book for recovery. Did you read any books about marriage or being yes. a father? Was there, was there a book in that realm of either marriage or parenthood that stuck with you? Yeah. So because of my spiritual belief, you know, I wanted to raise our kids with those type of principles you know, as parents, uh, man, we just read a book. Um, he's a, he's actually a pastor who read a book, but Tim Keller, you know, and he talks about the commitment of marriage, man. And and I literally, that book changed my life because it, it showed me how like in marriage, we're so used to like, we want our, our spouse is supposed to bring the best out of us. I want a wife or a spouse is going to bring the best out of me. She's going to fulfill all my needs. But the crazy part is that the book said that shocked me and it made sense that our wife, sometimes our spouse actually brings the worst out of us. And when I read that, I was like, what does that mean? And it showed me that, you know, just because your spouse brings something out of you, it's not that your spouse is doing it. It's something that's inside of you. You're just really close to your spouse. So where, where are you always looking at what you are? Like my wife, for example, she asked me to do dishes. This is three weeks ago. And I worked out, I got upset that she asked me to do the dishes because in my mind, I thought, what the heck? I just did all this stuff. I was working. I came home. I bathed the kid. I want to sit down and watch Monday night football. And that's, and what the book taught me was we have this selfish and self-centeredness. It's always thinking about us. You know, it's just, the. I always say that, man, it's the root of my problems. And this book taught me that I have to actually reflect and sit down. So when I got upset, I was able to go back to my wife and say, Hey, by the way, I apologize. I shouldn't have got upset at you when you asked me to wash the dishes. This is why I got upset. It kind of just made me feel like, you know, you were just, asking me to do something. I never, I didn't really even think about you. You've been, you've been working all day long. You know, you, you've actually been doing more than I've been doing around the kids. You wanted to break too. 
you know, and that, that allowed me to, and I do that before, you know, before I just brushed it off and then talked to her about it and said, Hey, sorry, you know, I yelled at you. And she's like, all right, it's fine. We moved on. But this book taught me to actually sit down and talk to my wife and really like make a real amends. You know, Eric Thomas also, you know, wrote a lot of books that I read of his because I love what he talks about is, man, I'm always trying to be a better husband. I don't want to be a seven figure business owner and a $10 husband, you know, and and the same thing for 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 parenting, man. That's that's a really tough thing as I'm parenting my kids. I'm like, man, I don't want them to be like me. And I'm constantly just trying to learn discipline. So I'm still reading some books on parenting and and listening to some podcasts on how to deal with a daughter who's got drive like me. My daughter's three years old. She wants to tell you what to do. You know what I mean? How, how do I deal with that? So I'm, I'm, I'm always just trying to learn and what area do I want to learn in and do the world of information today. There's no excuse, man. Man, I love that. I don't want to be a seven figure business guy and a $10 husband. That's beautiful. Facts. Uh, last question I ask this of all my guests, because always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life before you kill yourself what would you say to them joseph kg that you're not number one you're not alone um because the reality is i know suicide right now is really tough and and most of the time people when they're committing suicide is because they believe their life is not worth it they believe they're not valuable they believe they have nothing to give well man i I just believe god created us for something else i was at a place in my life that I, i wanted to kill myself and the reason why i wanted to kill myself was i thought i had nothing to give I thought I was not good enough because I was the judge of my own story. You know, I was the judge of my own story and I was afraid to talk about it with somebody else. I really was. I was afraid to pick up the phone and call somebody and say, I want to end my life, man. I mean, it gets me emotional now because I remember those moments, but the hardest thing, but the easiest thing I ever did in my life was I pick up the phone because the reality, and I look at my life and I look at every single person who's ever thought of that. And I have friends who thought of suicide, man, they are the most valuable people in this world because they overcame something that was tough. And now they're, they're helping so many people. Their life wasn't created to just die at their own hands. Their life was created for something more. But sometimes the world that we live in, in our own mind, it allows us to think that you're not good enough. They're just lies. I still have those lies that come on my mind today. So what I would tell that person is you are good enough. You were not created with the things that were in your mind. You were created for something great. Every single one of us got something great in us. Every I don't care if you are the best dishwasher in the world. You got something great in you. We just got to get it out of you. So maybe put your headphones on and listen to something or send me a message or pick up the phone and talk to somebody. Because if I would have ended my life, I just look at the people I was able to help today. It's a trickle effect. You know, it's a trickle effect. There was lies that were told in my head and there's lies that are told in your head that you're not good enough, but I promise you there's something great inside of you. And maybe you're blinded by it from your doubts, but I promise you, if you look in, there's something great inside of you. Reach out a hand for help because every single human's worth it, man. What's the name of your podcast? It's called Let's Get Real with Joseph KG. There it is. Let's get, and all that'll be linked to his social media, his podcast, his website. All that will be linked in the show notes. Uh, thank you for tuning in, Joseph. Thank you for tuning in, listeners. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for going to get help, calling a 988 or any of the international phone numbers, whether you are in Iraq or Iran or Kyrgyzstan, Kirk, 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 I don't know. I never know. Wherever you are. Wherever you are in the world, uh, there are international phone numbers. You can chat, you can chat, you can text, you can call. Uh, you can go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo, get that 10% off your first month of therapy. 
betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Joseph. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me.